You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with the Gun Show. This is episode number 651, and what a week it has been. I had to work some crazy hours from like 0445 a.m. to 0930, and it kicked my butt. My son tested positive for coronavirus. We were in isolation. He was, well, he was in isolation. We were in quarantine, and he has gotten through all of that. And it gives new meaning to the word, let everything that have breath praise ye the Lord. I am thankful to God for allowing him to be healed, to get through it. Breathing takes on a whole new meaning when you can't do it. Can I get an amen, somebody? 2020 is still with us. This is October 2020. And it's like that snafu thing, situation normal, all effed up. This week, I want to share with you an article written in Silencer Co. blog by my friend Larry Case called Hunting with Suppressors. Also, and seven common sense things that y'all want you to remember in the art of war. All that and more, coming up next. Blackmanwithagun.com Ken Blanchard's Pro-Gun Podcast. And the hits keep coming. I had some technical difficulties on Friday night, and this podcast is a little late but it's out first thing Monday for all those who check it out first part of the week. Me personally, I'm doing the best I can with what I got left. I want to give a quick shout out to Brother Ian and thank you for that handwritten note, man, you sent me. Um, I appreciate that. You rock. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color. There was a virtual Second Amendment rally happening over the weekend. And if you were a part of it or you listened to it, would love to hear your thoughts. In the stock market today, uh, helium was up, feathers were down, and paper was stationary. Weights were up in heavy trading. Fluorescent tubes were down in light trading. Light switches were off. Caterpillar stock inched up a bit. Knives were up sharply. Cows were steered into a bull market. Pencils were down a few points. Hiking equipment was trailing. Elevators were up. Escalators experienced a slight decline. Mining equipment hit rock bottom. Diapers were unchanged. Prunes plummeted. Sun peaked at midday. Balloon prices were inflated. There was heavy trading of metals. The bottom fell out of disposable diapers. Major shipping lines stayed on an even keel and pain relievers soared. And I'm still wondering why people with closed minds always open their mouths. Since 2014, I have been a member of the Crossbreed Holster family. If you carry concealed... Get a holster that supports not only your firearm, but your freedom, the faith, and this brother with a try-it-free lifetime guarantee. Crossbreedholsters.com Crossbreedholsters.com For all you hunters out there, I got a question for you. Have you ever hunted with suppressors? I want to read to you an article, a new blog post from my new friend, Larry Case, Hunting with Suppressors. This is what he wrote. During the summer and early fall while varmint hunting, I've been able to shoot some pretty spiffy rifles. What is new for me, however, is that I have stepped into the world of hunting with suppressors. Using a suppressor on a hunting rifle has intrigued me for a long time. And finally, I'm here. I have two Silencer Co. suppressors the Harvester 300 and the Omega 300, and they are mounted respectively 
on a Mossberg Patriot, Predator 6.5 Creedmoor, and a Remington 5R in 223. Now, if you want to see what this looks like, I will put a link to the whole article in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. But I will also put a few little peeks in our show notes if you get a chance to share it there. Larry says, I am a hunter. I was raised as a hunter, and I'll always be a hunter. My father took me hunting when I was small, and I never looked back. Not once in my life did I ever consider not being a hunter. Hunting is just something we did. It started with plinking bumblebees and other insects with a BB gun and moved on to English sparrows and starlings with a pellet rifle. Dad had a strict rule about not shooting songbirds. Then came the day of days when I could take my first squirrel. Deer, ducks, and turkey came later. How about we fast forward? It's that time in Appalachians. Summer is sliding into fall. I sit with my back against an ancient oak log on the edge of an overgrown field and watch. I'm hunting with suppressors, even though the real hunting season haven't even started yet. In my neck of the woods, summer and early fall usually mean one thing for the hunter, varmints. Varmints in my neck of the woods mean groundhogs, or woodchucks depending where you are, crows, and coyotes. I tough it out through the hot days of August. There is not much you can do during the heat of the day. Late in the evening, it cools down enough to sit and watch a limestone pasture field for woodchucks and maybe a chance at a crow or two. Crows that land in a field and a walk around are a real challenge to the rifleman. The actual target area is very small and a crow is rarely standing still. Numbers run through the cobwebs of my brain as I glass the area before me and figure uh, 200 yards maybe my limit on Mr. Crow. A little later, though, early September comes and there is some change. Fall is not yet here, but it has cooled down, so I sneak around the slope of a brushed-up pasture and tuck into a hiding place. From here, I can watch a wide valley before me, open fields, woodlots, and brushy fence rows. It's woodchuck country, and there's always a chance of being or getting a shot on crows. I might even see a coyote. My dog, Bo, appreciates the suppressor too. Watching the landscape before me, I realize a sudden calm has come over me. A weight seems to have been lifted. I begin to comprehend that I am enjoying sitting here on this peaceful evening. What brought this on, I wonder? Then it kind of hits me. I am hunting. I am hiding and waiting in ambush. I am watching for the quarry. I am hunting. It's remarkable to me but I definitely feel a sense of well-being. Maybe I need to do this more. Woodchucks, groundhogs, whichever name you prefer, the staple of the eastern varmint hunter has always been the groundhog. Poxitani Phil aside, the groundhog is usually considered a pest in these parts. Farmers loathe these rodents as they dig holes in hay meadows, pastures, and around buildings. They are ferocious diggers, and there have been studies that suggest the groundhog may move two tons of dirt in digging one burrow. If a cow steps in a burrow and breaks its leg, its owner is definitely not in the groundhog fan club. Strangely, in recent years, groundhog populations have plummeted. Farms that once teemed with them now seem to have very few. This is over a wide area of southern West Virginia and Virginia, and every farmer you ask about this issue says the same thing. The coyotes got them. I'm not sure about this, 
and coyotes get blamed for a lot in this area. The fact remains that groundhogs are scarce. The coyotes got them. I'm not sure about this, and coyotes get blamed for a lot in this area. The fact remains that groundhogs are scarce. I didn't think crows had any fans up until I wrote this article in a newspaper and got blessed out by some people via email. Having said that, most farmers in the area don't have much sympathy for crows. Cornfields are a big target for crows, both when corn is in the sprouting stage and later when ears are on the stalks. Crows are major predators of songbird nests and ground nesting birds like turkeys and grouse. For all of these reasons, I don't have a problem taking out the occasional crow, even though they are not easy. Coyotes. The eastern coyote is something of a mystery. While they are found in every state east of the Big Muddy, most people consider them new to this area. Many hunters blame them for everything, from low turkey and deer numbers to downturn in the stock market. The coyote is intelligent, highly adaptable, and has survival instincts that are off the chart. They will eat almost anything, and farmers and landowners usually have no problem giving you permission to coyote hunt. The eastern version of the coyote can get big and seem to be a different animal than the western dog. Sometimes they will respond to predator calls, and sometimes not. I am in no way an expert here and have called in more coyotes while turkey calling than when rabbits squealing. Nevertheless, they are here and probably always will be, so we hunt them. This is a new era, but it's hunting with suppressors. Even though I'm a novice regarding hunting with suppressors, I have no ambitions to see a Hollywood version of what a silencer is supposed to be. The big boom most of us associate with the high-powered rifle is caused by the escaping gases from the propellant, or the gunpowder, rushing out of the barrel. A suppressor slows this down with a series of baffles so that these gases do not escape all at once. This greatly reduces the sound of the rifle's rapport. What a suppressor will not do is lessen the noise of the supersonic crack of a rifle bullet as it breaks the speed of sound. To do this, we must shoot subsonic ammo, which means it's going to be less than 1,100 feet per second at sea level. He says, I won't be shooting any subsonic ammo for this project, but stay tuned. There'll be more in this subject in future columns. Now, while the crack of the rifle bullet going supersonic is generally not considered dangerous to hearing, since it happens downrange of the shooter, it's still loud. So again, you won't see the Hollywood version of the hitman with a silencer. Reasons for hunting with suppressors. So this begs the question, why would you hunt with a suppressor? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer, less noise, less recoil, more accuracy, happy shooters. Larry says, I spent 36 years as a Department of Natural Resources law enforcement officer in West Virginia, including being a firearms trainer officer for pistols, rifles, and shotguns. Like many firearms instructors, I often saw the effects of recoil and noise with students. Try as we might not to show it, the human animal is affected by the jarring push of a rifle or a shotgun against the shoulder or the jump of a handgun upon firing. I have stood and watched it on the range. A new shooter already appears psyched out before picking up the gun. The first thing they ask when handed the weapon, is it going to kick? A suppressor will lessen the felt recoil, the pressure of the gun coming straight back against the shoulder by countering some of the escaping gases coming out of the barrel. 
Less noise due to the rapport of the rifle will equate to a better shooting experience for the new shooter or an experienced one. As I have seen time and time again, when shooters are no longer afraid of firearms, shooting proficiency increases. Now they can follow the fundamentals that they have been taught and they will simply be more accurate with the rifle. You know, number one, keep your neighbors happy. Whether we like it or not, for many of us, our hunting and shooting world is getting smaller. There are areas where we still hunt, but the proximity of houses and businesses make loud gunfire undesirable. As a law enforcement officer, I dealt with the common complaint of hunters shooting around residences. Shooting and hunting may be perfectly legal where they are shooting, but the neighbors just didn't want to hear the noise. Using a suppressor might light might Using a suppressor might lessen the noise to a level that neighbors won't complain. Here's something else. Many towns now have urban deer hunts close to dwellings. Hunting with suppressors will keep things on a good level with surrounding residents and allow you to hunt and take deer from overpopulated areas. Number two, save your hearing. If you ask older, experienced shooters and hunters about suppressors, the first thing they may say is, huh? Hearing loss is a fact of life for many of us, and using a suppressor would definitely help with this problem. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration reports, you know, OSHA, that the level of sound that is safe for human hearing is 140 decibels. Depending on the load in the firearm, the average decibel for a 308 is about 160. Most suppressors will reduce a 308's decibel level by at least 30%, giving you a decibel level well below OSHA standards. And number three, it's a lot more fun. I maintain that most of us have forgotten the basic truth about hunting and shooting. It is supposed to be fun. If we are not having fun and enjoying these activities, then what are we doing out there? If a suppressor provides less recoil and less noise, it makes the shooter more accurate, making the whole experience more fun. Using a suppressor for hunting will give you more hunting opportunities, as in more places you can go. If you think about it, there aren't any reasons not to be hunting with suppressors. Now back to the field. As the sun drops behind the ridge, it gets cooler. I think about the fleece jacket that I left in the truck. I try to stay on task and keep glassing around the fence, rows, and large round hay bales out there, several hundred yards away, right on cue. A pack of coyotes opens up on the opposite ridge. We have played this game before, and I know if I answer with the coyote howls, they will respond, but come no closer. I decide to just sit and watch. A huge moon peeks over the ridge and provides an almost postcard setting. Summer is over, and it won't be long before I can do this on a deer stand. But for now, this is perfect. And in the picture... It's a picture of a field in West Virginia. He says, I will leave this place, but I don't, wanna, I don't want to. I bask in the glow of the big moon and the peace that seems to have rolled over me watching this little valley. I am hunting. Hunting with suppressors. And again, this is from my friend Larry Case. And in case you didn't know it, Larry Case lives in the mountains of West Virginia and has been a hunter, shooter, and outdoorsman his entire life. Larry served for 36 years as a DNR law enforcement officer, otherwise known as a game warden, and retired as the district captain. Larry now writes articles for the country's finest gun and hunting-related magazines and websites. 
He also pens a newspaper column that appears weekly in eight newspapers in five states. He claims he once worked as a whitewater river guide before he became an officer of the wildlife law. Amazingly, he can also play tequila on a duck call. And you can check this out on the blog for silencerco.com. If you've been to blackmailthegun.com, you've seen that pop up for buymeacoffee.com forward slash Ken Blanchard. And I want to thank those nine people, nine people that have supported me and that do support me on that new crowdfunding platform. Wasn't sure how it was going to go, but I wanted to have something just in case. Patreon went down. And right now, Patreon, we have 33 members. And I thank you, family, for that. You guys have been long standing. And because of that, we're going to have a private Zoom thing once a month coming up soon. But I might make it for the um, buy me a coffee folks, too, that are in the membership area. If you don't think you made a difference, huh? let me tell you something. I would not be here right now doing this on the microphone, podcasting in my basement, if it weren't for you, the supporters of this podcast. This stuff costs. And it's not only financial, it's emotional. And sometimes money talks and everything else is just BS. Because when the bills come and the credit card is like due and the house is still got to do house stuff and the husband's still got to do husband stuff, you know what I'm saying? And then it's being paid for by you. Your little $5 or $10 or 20 bucks, whatever you're contributing, helps a lot. Yeah, it does. So thank you for supporting me in buymeacoffee.com and in patreon.com. And the second way is through just email, just telling me to keep going and give me encouragement, find me on Facebook or however you talk to me. That helps too. I ain't going to poo-poo that because I need you to talk to me sometimes. I need to know when I'm going left and when I'm going right. If you want to make sure this thing grows, if you want to make sure it still goes, Please be a member of either patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun or buymeacoffee.com forward slash Ken Blanchard. And you know it has Ken with two ends. Long, long time ago, there was a guy by the name of Sun Tzu. He wrote a book that's pretty famous. You might have heard of it. It's called The Art of War. He said to win 100 victories on 100 battles is not the acme of skill. To subdue the enemy without fighting is the acme of skill. Some people think that in the next coming months, maybe weeks even, there's going to be some civil unrest. There's going to be some trouble. Can I give you seven tips, seven things to think about that might help you in your situation that maybe you have forgotten or didn't consider? The first rule number one, you can't avoid what you do not see. You cannot make an intelligent decision about a threat of which you are unaware. The first and most essential step in any safety plan is simply to keep your eyes and your ears open to the world around you. This provides two benefits at the same time. First, of course, is the heightened situational awareness and the ability to detect threats or avoid dangerous environments. The second is to be aware of the changes of our outward appearance. Criminals like the element of surprise and look for targets who don't see them coming. If you walk down the street with your head up, eyes scanning your surroundings, you appear less vulnerable. If you do nothing else to begin your safety efforts, pay attention, doggone it. 
Rule number two, distance is your friend. There are a few hard and fast rules you can apply across the range of possible emergencies. One that you can count on is that you cannot make your decision or your situation worse by intelligently moving away from a threat. If you can maintain even a few feet of separation from a bad guy, you can make physical contact difficult or also impossible. With every additional yard of separation, you become statistically more difficult to hit with thrown objects, bullets, or whatever. Even explosive force diminishes with distance, and fragments slow down as they travel. So anything you can do to separate yourself from a perceived threat will reduce its ability to reach out and touch you. Barriers are your friends, too. Rule number three. Next to distance, putting anything solid between yourself and a threat makes it harder for the harmful force to reach you. Most physical threat is measured in terms of force. Every time an attack has a punch-through intervening barrier, it loses force, often a great deal of force. A sufficient barrier or a series of barriers can stop an attack altogether. This is a simple concept that has been portrayed on every TV gunfight you've ever seen. Combatants trade shots while intermittently ducking behind some solid object. Bullets that were otherwise on the mark bury into or ricochet off of whatever barrier is in use. Consider this in contrast to an equally common Hollywood example of poor decision-making shown when some good guy on foot is being pursued by a bad guy in, bad guy in a car. The victim invariably runs down the center line of the road where the car overtakes and flattens him. Had our victim zigzagged between every parked car and tree, the vehicle would have most lo- likely lost all ability to make contact. One of the most astounding examples of this strategy was captured on video, actually, in February 24, 2006, where a man approached a lawyer outside of Van Nuys, California, courthouse and began to fire at him with a handgun. Having no place better to hide, the lawyer stepped behind a tree for cover. Although the two figures were close enough to touch one another, the lawyer was able to shift left and right between and behind the tree and avoid being hit, although several shots were fired. The assailant finally ran out of bullets and simply walked away. Now, as crazy as that seems, the tree provided enough visual and physical barrier to keep the victim safe. Entering a solidly constructed building or moving around any sizable object that breaks your line of sight with a hazard can provide some degree of physical barrier against the threat that is on the other side. Number four, duty to warn. Folks like you and I, civilians, have no duty to issue any type of warning to somebody who was attacking us. That's right, none. The antiquated notion of a fair fight seems civilized and honorable, but there is no basis for it in modern law. Your decision to use force should be predicated on your ability to articulate afterwards why you felt you were in danger and, in some jurisdictions, explain that you had exhausted reasonable measures to get away or mitigate the threat. Presuming a clearly evident threat, like a bad guy entering your bedroom with a machete in hand, you are under no obligation to express your defensive intent or give the bad guy a chance to repent of his evil ways. In fact, doing so may in some circumstance place you at even a greater risk. The element of surprise can be a powerful advantage in any conflict and could spell the difference in the outcome of a fight. More specifically, emphatically, you should never 
ever fire a warning shot of any sort with a firearm. Doing so will likely place you in grave risk for severe criminal charges and civil liabilities levied against you should you survive. Duty to render aid. You know, most of us grew up in a world where we felt obliged to, to assist the injured. It's not in our nature to stand by while somebody screams for help. However, much like the duty to warn, there is no specific duty to render aid to somebody who presented a danger to you, either by threatening you or actually attacking you. Somebody who has been injured as a direct or indirect result of a criminal act of violence should be considered dangerous until secured by the police. Do not approach. Do not attempt to get a better look at their injuries. Do not let yourself get sucked in by pleas for help. If you watch Halloween at any time, you know that Michael will get back up. The logic is simple. You never, ever want to be close to a violent person, be they chasing you or flat on the ground and screaming. Even injured people can lash out in danger. In drug-fueled insanity or by using the appearance of injury as a ruse to draw you in range. As I said before, the injured person may be bleeding. And contact with their blood and other bodily fluids these days can put you at risk for blood-borne pathogens. So stay away. There is no scenario in which your safety improves by moving closer to a violent bad guy, regardless of their condition. The moment the bad person is no longer able to hurt or pursue you, be it a brief moment for what it appears to be a permanent disability, get away to a safe location as fast as you can and call 911. Never assume the risk from an injured bad guy is over or diminished, even if the injury that they suffer appears catastrophic. Continue to act as though the threat remains clear and present until police officers arrive and secure the scene. Are you ready for rule number six? The duty to comply with police. Now, this is a point that's often overlooked, but one that has tremendous implications. Officers arriving on the scene will not have some magical advanced knowledge of your situation. There is no guarantee that things told to a 911 operator will make it to the officers en route. An officer may find you face down and injured or find you standing while an injured assailant lies on the ground. When first confronted with the scene, the officer may have no idea which one of you is the criminal and which is the victim. Keep in mind, at this moment, the officer will have the same concern for their safety as you do. The officer will immediately begin to issue instructions, likely to show your hands to be empty or to get down on the ground. This is not some power play or a game. You have a legal duty to comply with the police officer's instructions. Failure to do so places you, as well as the officer, at a greater risk of harm. In fact, it's a good idea to raise your hands and shout victim as the officer first approaches. While they are not likely to take anything at face value, this can help establish identity in those first few seconds. In the very least, it's a non-hostile act. In a complex and dynamic situation, an officer may go as far as to handcuff people, you, or secure them inside of a vehicle. These actions carry no expressions of presumed guilt or innocence. They are merely how they've been trained to get control of a dangerous situation. The officer's first priority is to ensure that nobody gets hurt and separate all the players is one way to keep them from hurting each other. Now, if the cops arrive during or after a violent incident, follow the officer's direction promptly and without argument. Did, did you hear me? 
Follow the officer's direction promptly and without argument. If you distract the officer with your own behavior, you may provide the real criminal with an opening to attack or to escape. Now, this transition phase can be challenging. The threat posed by a criminal does not cease the moment an officer pulls up on the scene. A bad guy may panic on seeing police arrive and may continue to inflict harm until properly secured, which means in handcuffs and locked in a vehicle or otherwise restrained. You may have a weapon in your hand that you have used to keep a threat at bay, and simply dropping that weapon when the police first arrive may give the bad guy an opportunity to use it, and that puts everybody at risk. Put this in the back of your head. You need to be mindful that you have a weapon in your hand, be it a gun, brick, baseball, bat, or whatever. Never point a weapon of any type in the direction of the police. An officer may reasonably perceive that as a threat and respond in a way that turns out very badly for all of us, especially you. Immediately following police instruction in this case is now more critical than ever. Whether you are armed or not, you should make an immediate gesture of submission toward responding officers, like raising one or both hands, fingers open to let them know that you are not a threat. You may be amped up on adrenaline and fear. You may be hurt, but this is not the moment to try to blurt out your story. You will have ample opportunity once the scene is secure. This is a time to listen carefully and follow directions. It may sound like a cliche, but the only answer that should come out of your mouth is, yes, sir, because that, more than anything else, will convey a non-threatening, law-abiding attitude. All right, last point number seven, the duty to be right. You know, at the end of all things, you owe it to yourself to be right. That may sound strange. But anybody who has read a newspaper or watched a news program in the last 20 years can tell you that good intentions and common sense may mean nothing in the wake of a violent encounter. Many people, officers included, have ended up in life-altering trouble after taking action against an aggressor who appeared to be armed with a deadly weapon that later proved to be a cell phone, a toy, or some other inert object. What may seem to you like a terrifying split-second, live-or-die moment, will almost certainly be picked apart by lawyers one thread at a time in an effort to convince a jury that whatever decision you made was wrong. How did you know the criminal would hurt you, they will ask. How could you be certain? Now, this is an ingenuous standard. Humans lack the ability to predict the future. We count on certain things like gravity to be reasonably constant, but we will never know, in the godlike omniscient sense, what another human being will do in the next moment. We react to what we believe based on the evidence in front of us, and we'll never know anything until it has already happened. This brings us to a point of separating emotion and tradition from our analysis. Now, I know people who say they would wreck bloody havoc, quote, if somebody ever threatened my kids, broke into my house, etc. But like most people, I understand that sentiment and recognize the tendency we have to draw our lines in the sand. In an earlier America, that was a more legally survivable proposition. But in today's America, no matter how things appeared at the time of the criminal attack, an average citizen may well be crucified after the facts have been studied for days, weeks, or even months. What if the gun in the bad guy's hand turned out to be a realistic airsoft toy? What if the face under that mask is later revealed to be of a different color than yours? 
and somebody asserts your actions are motivated by race. Oh, schnuggy now. People who acted in honest fear for their safety have gone on to see their lives, homes, and fortunes flushed away on just such turns of fact. So what am I saying? You clearly do not want to accept the risk of life or limb for fear of wrongful litigation. There's an old axiom that says, I would rather be judged by 12 than carried by 6. You've heard that, right? But the reality of today's America raises the ante for how and where you draw your line in the sand in terms of defensive action. If you are not entirely clear as to the nature of a threat and you feel you have sufficient intervening barrier, you could be better served to make any attempt to further clarify the situation before you take action. What am I saying? Sometimes the best action is to do nothing. Consider a home invasion scenario. Although it may seem improbable at the moment, somebody might have entered your house by a sincere or drunken mistake or to seek aid in a crisis of their own. This risk highlights another benefit of your fortify strategy in providing you with the means to clarify or safely extend a situation that might otherwise be unclear. You have a duty to yourself to be found legally right when the smoke clears and you will likely never have all the facts up front. This means you need to stay calm and think in a crisis. You need to be able to articulate why you took the action you did and possibly why you did not avail yourselves of alternatives. Think clearly, act rationally, and be ready to give a good reason for the choices that you make. You know, when you hear a phrase like the speed of thought, it's easy to take that to mean instantly. You may be surprised to know that that's quite the opposite. It takes time for the light that strikes your eye to be processed into a visual picture that your brain can even start to consider. Not a lot of time, mind you, but on average it takes most people at least three quarters of a second for the brain to react to an outside stimulus. In combative training, this is called the reaction gap. That may not seem like much time at all, but a lot can happen in just a second. When you add stress or unexpected events, that gap can stretch on for several seconds. And you have doubtlessly seen real events and news footage where a frightening event occurs and some people just stand, shock, frozen in place. These are people in a stuck reaction gap. Brains unable to process events and provide even reflex level direction. Now, if you're talking, your reaction gap is typically greater than if you are quiet and paying attention. On rare occasions, Hollywood have presented this accurately. I give you an example. In that movie, Collateral with Tom Cruise, the assassin, Vincent, encounters a pair of common thugs, one with gun in hand, having just robbed another character. Vincent poses a question. Is that my briefcase? The thug with the gun begins to speak, and Vincent responds with sudden, unexpected swiftness. The fight was over before either thug recognized that it had happened. Admittedly, this is a fictional, uh, fictitious example, but with training, one can draw and put two rounds into an up-close target in less than a second. Reaction gap may be a fleeting moment, but it can be time enough for one sudden, definitive act that changes the tide of battle. It may allow you to shoot or strike or break contact and get away. It, you choose to exploit this vulnerability. Make sure your action is emphatic. With a reaction gap in mind, 
Should you find yourself in a stressful, high-threat scenario, shut up. That might sound harsh, but this is not the time for idle conversation or venting emotion. It is a time for watching and thinking. If you must speak, keep your statements short and direct. And if you have the decision to act in a way that might benefit from a brief head start, getting your opponent to talk or visually track a brief distraction may help that equation to some degree. And hopefully, some of those seven rules make sense. Well, that's it, my friends. I want to thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing. Thank you for your support. Check out silencerco.com, the new blog, and give Larry Case article a nice little read and a thumbs up if you can review it and comment. It'll mean the world to me personally. I'm hoping that by the time I get my video um, together that you like it as well. You know, these are tough times for some people. Take a look around and make sure that your brother or your sister is doing okay. Check in on each other. Make the social media thing work and actually be social. All right? You know, just in case nobody else tells you this today, I love you. And it's not a damn thing you can do about it. Until the next time you hear my voice. Shalom, baby. To keep in touch with Ken and his cause, head over to blackmanwithagun.com.